0: Soundboard, Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, Director of Content at Steinway & Sons and Editor-in-Chief of the online music magazine, ListenMusicCulture.com. Today, I'm speaking with pianist Katya Bunyatishvili. This conversation occurred pre-pandemic at Steinway Hall in New York City. Some interviews begin not with a question, but of their own accord. This was one such interview.
1: I mean, if you watch yourself in a mirror, it's different because okay. in the mirror, like you are used to that, and it's like watching your soul or your inner world. Or mm. this is different. But as soon as you get something that you are not used to, and it's not a habit, for example, the voice, your own voice, because it's not natural for me to hear my own voice, you have an impression that you hear yourself through others' ears. You have some kind of disconnection with yourself, which mm. is kind of weird and unpleasant, and. Uh, uncomfortable because you watch yourself from beside, and that's not pleasant when it's about voice, mm-hmm. I guess.
0: <laughs> Is it almost an out of body experience? Do you sometimes yeah. watch yourself playing the piano?
1: Sometimes I do, not often, uh-huh. but it happens. Uh, I mean, like while you're
0: playing. Is there ever an out-of-body experience, or do you have to be... Uh, While
1: I'm playing, Uh, there's most definitely both experience, which is uh, you're someone that produces this sound and you're in action and doing something and you're active. And on the other hand, you are a listener from the side. And I think that's the um, difficulty of our profession, or I don't like to say profession, but of what we do, because you have to do both. You have to be part of it and you have to be
0: apart from it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's very true.
1: Do you play piano? I do
0: play piano. Okay, so you understand. I understand. I mean, I play poorly. Let's be clear.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But do you play on stage?
0: Yes, I have. If you have,
1: then you have this perception of doing this contradiction. It's contradiction because at the same time you play and you're a listener. Doing this both uh, is very difficult. Like being an actor and director at the same time, it's hard. But you have this perception only when you're on stage, I think, because when you play at home, it's not the same. Mm. When you're at home... um, Again, it's like watching in the mirror. It's more natural. It's like a habit. But as soon as you put yourself in front of others, you have different perception of things, and it becomes more clear and more contradictional, and then it's more complicated. But then you get used. Then you try to find the harmony in that complicated moment, so it's kind of...
0: Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way, because there is a self-awareness, especially when playing an instrument. I mean, I'm restating what you said, but I'm thinking about it. The act of listening to yourself while playing at the same time can be maddening because yeah. you're making these micro adjustments, right? Whether it's for the hall or the audience or yourself
1: mm-hmm. as
0: you go mm-hmm. it's a constant self-correction isn't it?
1: and it's complicated because you want to keep your intimacy you want to keep being very faithful towards your inner world and inner understanding of this music but at the same time you have to be very somehow not pragmatic but uh, realistic because exactly because you have perception of the acoustics of the atmosphere of the different orchestras or you're alone it depends but uh, mixing this reality and completely surreal and at the same time very intimate world mixing these two is hard and it it could kill the creative part for some people because this contradiction might become a trauma but as soon as you become a professional then of course it's not a trauma anymore or it's not a trauma from the beginning, it depends on a person. But uh, this professionalism uh, helps you to somehow surmount this obstacle. But at the same time, uh, that's why it's still something that you have to have some skills to do that. And it's not just being creative. It's not like an artist or a painter that paints a beautiful painting or not beautiful painting, whatever. Uh, but it's there. Afterwards, it belongs to those who watch it. But the work, artistic creative work, was done in a very intimate process of working process, right? But for us, it's, you have to deal with the reality as well, and that's hard. You have to stay creative, and especially if you're a highly creative person, like person who likes to be like a creator of something, not just interpret. But you have, if you have this side in your character, which is mostly creative, then it's really hard to do this profession, because... It's not only about creativity, it's also dealing with some problems in the precise moment. So for me, it was hard because I was more, I want, always wanted to be someone that creates some things uh, at night, for example, mm-hmm. alone, and not just doing it in front of people. But uh, it was hard to surmount this obstacle. But uh, somehow, from the beginning, nobody has ever remarked that it was hard for me, mm-hmm. but it was always hard for me inside of myself.
0: Did some of that difficulty stem from the intimacy of the creation process and then the very, let's just say, exhibitionistic yeah. act of performing in front of people? Absolutely, because
1: um, music is something that concentrates your emotions, I think. Concentrated emotions is a very subtle and very personal thing. Um, so. Suggesting to share this with other people is really hard and sometimes you have to do other exhibitionist moments to cover these real hard moments which are sharing intimacy with others. For example, sometimes they talk about dresses and things like that mm-hmm. like open dress or things like that and why it's... This is not the hardest part. I mean, this is just a small... Uh, Difficulty. Hardest part is to share your whole intimacy in front of people.
0: People get hung up on the visual intimacy. Yeah, which is ironic because it's the it's the sound that's ephemeral.
1: Yeah, of course, uh, absolutely. But some people think that what you see might disturb what you hear. Like Hmm. some people have uh, contradictions with different senses. Okay, it's their problem. But I mean. What I'm saying is that I think the concert worth something when you don't think about material things, you forget. First, you have this material effect, of course, because you come on stage and what you see is what you see. But after uh, when you can forget everything that is material and everything that you can touch and see and you go to something that is emotional, which is immaterial, that's the concert that I would say that worth listening or watching or whatever this kind of uh, visual things could be for some people it's like very superficial but for me it was very important and a profound process of dealing with showing emotions you know because at some point when you can show yourself physically then you can maybe it helps to show yourself emotionally as well mm. because you are very vulnerable and open with your emotions on concert I think well I am like that I
0: don't know how are others about that as I was listening to your recordings, I often encountered some new tempos to familiar pieces for me mm-hmm. that I wasn't expecting, but you managed to convince me. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> but but this, is, this is what I want to ask you about. <laughs> A lot of these tempi were slower than I would have thought would have been, let's say, possible for the piece. You mean the slow movements? Or- slow movements like, okay, for example, the list stension True worthly yes. okay. It was just slower than I would have thought okay. it would be, right? Not having it in my head before I hear it. Okay. But it was convincing. as I listen to more of your music, I feel that that is actually one of your strengths, is this unhurried, I don't want to say slow or fast because that's relative, but an unhurried deliberateness to your playing. Mm -hmm. There's a patience that comes through.
1: For me, it's like I'd never analyzed it before, but now that you're saying, I'm analyzing right now. Mm -hmm. So just that you know that I never thought about it like that before, because when I choose a tempo, it's the tempo that I feel. So I don't listen to other interpretations before I start to learn a piece because I think that's the most... That can contaminate
0: your interpretation?
1: It cannot contaminate, but uh, I don't like to do it. I want to have, like, maybe too egoistic. I want to have my egoistic approach and my personal relationship with the composer. I'm like, I want the composer for myself. So when I open this course, because I love those composers that I play. So when you love someone, you want them for yourself. I think you set them free, but also you want them for yourself. So when I open this course, I want to have the very kind of first time having having met each other kind of feeling so I don't listen to other interpretations. It's not so easy to be influenced, but uh, I just don't want to share it with others in the process of preparing a piece. But now that you are talking about kind of unhurried, as you said, uh, tempo, uh, it's a very important thing because um, for me, one of the main contradictions in life, but also in music, is that there is some kind of a rhythm around me and I try to find my own rhythm in that chaotic rhythm that I'm surrounded. There is always this double perception of timing. One thing is what happens around me, that rhythm and my own breathing and my own rhythm. It can be harmonious but at the same at the same time in a contradiction with the outside rhythm. It's the same thing in music I think because there are these bars and measures, but then there is your breathing and your understanding of these bars and measures and thing is that you keep these bars as it's written but inside of it even if you Go with the flow uh, of these bars and measures, like in life. You still find your own freedom in it, and I think it's a very human dilemma in general because we somehow have this, you know, timing in life because there is, uh, end. So you have this concrete time in in your in. Your life and you try to to our lives exactly and expiration date. So Hmm. uh, you want to avoid it, but you I think that dilemma is how to avoid it, knowing that you cannot, Mm -hmm. but you still want it. So our Hmm. wishes and dreams are different from the reality. So you try to combine those two together and still to be optimistic and somehow to be in purpose, like always in search of avoiding it because that's what gives you the strength to live and life force. It's exactly the same thing. Um, in For me, tempos is the same thing in music. Like you have this end at the end of the piece, but you try to f- find your freedom in it and how you breathe in it.
0: You said something about how you don't listen to a piece when you're trying to select a tempo. Is there a right tempo for the work that you try to hit on? Or can you have equally convincing interpretations at different tempi you can you
1: can Uh have i mean me myself or different people different
0: you yourself Uh, i mean myself are you like oh this is it
1: no i always know my tempo okay it can change maybe from one period to another in my life but
0: Mm -hmm. but not from i'm very convinced
1: in my truth knowing that my truth has nothing to do with any real truth, because there is no real truth, actually. I think we're we're not we don't have this awareness of what the truth is, but I'm pretty sure that my truth could be the only authentic uh, and sincere and faithful towards composer way of expressing his music. because if I try different tempo, I can do that because I'm a professional. I mean, I have done it since I'm a child, like playing piano and doing concerts. And sometimes when you play with the orchestras, you have to do that because it's not only about yourself. And I'm I'm playing with the orchestra like I would play chamber music. So I make some compromises. But when I'm uh, in a recital and solo music, then why? I mean, uh, no, there is one truth in that precise moment. It can change in another moment, but there cannot be two. But of course, if I listen to other musicians that I love, then, of course, it can be completely different tempo and it can be so convincing for me, you know?
0: Talk to me about the process of, let's say you're learning a new piece, or rather a piece that's new to you. Where do you start?
1: Oh, good question. Uh, I start to read this course, like opening a love letter from a composer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just play it once through, even if I know the music, of course, Most of the repertoire we have somewhere from childhood in our head, or recently we have listened accidentally. Right, so it's Uh, not tabula
0: rasa. You're going to probably have formed some impression.
1: Of course. I think, I mean, it depends on repertoire. The major Mm -hmm. pieces, of course, you have listened at some point somewhere. Uh, But um, it can be also a new piece, which was written now, or something that you just discovered. Afterwards, I don't know. The learning process, like learning uh, by heart, uh, is so fast that I don't ha- really have analyzed moment when does it happen really.
0: Mm.
1: Because um, it depends. When I was much younger, I was learning uh, concerts sometimes in for example, this second concerto I learned in two days, Rachmaninoff uh, third concerto in two weeks, and second concerto in ten days. Just an example, and played on stage. So I had these kind of very stressful moments when the most important was to learn the text, you know. Right. And then uh, regarding music, it was coming on stage, you know, interpretation. It's difficult to analyze because when I play the music, I have uh, such a clear vision of what I see already from the first. Side thing of this course that I'm not looking for things, you know what I mean? It's like because I'm not looking like things like how shall I do this interpretation, Uh dramaturgy. It's like so clear what composers tell to you in that precise moment. It is very clear. I think even if they will not put marks, I would guess, even if I don't read, for example, crescendo or accent or something like that, very often I can even. I guess, I think, because music itself has this kind of flow which is very natural in the
0: dramaturgy. You're not going to get hung up on a specific dynamic marking as you... are No, no, of course, I
1: read everything. But uh, in the process of reading, of course, you see it. But Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes, for example, when I have given a master class and I didn't watch I've never played for example the piece but of course I know the piece uh, I've heard but I've never played uh, sometimes even if I don't watch this course and I don't like something for example what student does I'm watching afterwards this course and it's the mark that I would guess by myself because you already know the composer and you have the intuition what he might have re- wrote you know right. what I mean that's what I mean but I think uh, reading the dramaturgy is as uh, simple at some point very complicated but at the same time simple as you would read
0: a book mm. like once you read a book you mean vis-a-vis themes and motifs everything and, everything the
1: dramaturgy mm-hmm. it's like music is exactly that clear and uh, simple to discover the science what composer wanted as if you would read a book and you would have an opinion about book you would have a perception of a book, idea about the book, you know, what Mm -hmm. you read in your book, what you see in this book, you could exactly in the same way see the music, I think. Of course, when there is some kind of intellectual perception of things. Mm.
0: Mm -hmm. Do different composers require different priorities or do you approach each composer with the same priorities? So Schubert and Chopin, Mm -hmm. do you approach a work by each of them with the same process Or does Chopin get more attention on a certain thing?
1: I approach every composer with the same intentions, uh, but at the end the result is very different. Mm. Not because I am very diverse or I have this capacity, but because composers and their music bring you somewhere else. And for me stylistic difference is very important because not because it's stylistically different in an epoch wise like it's a classicism now it's Roman. not because of that Uh, stylistic difference is very important because it captures the individual and I'm a big individualist I don't like IST ending but I mean I'm a person that gives individual a very big importance even in the public for example Hmm. I don't see uh, many people I see individuals when I see them so uh, for me it's very as you can imagine, with the composers, it's the same thing. So stylistic differences from one composer to another is extremely important for me. To see what, what is unique in them. Not what is different from each other, but what is unique in each of them.
0: Let's get into your latest recording, which was Schubert. Mm. What were some discoveries that you made spending time with his last sonata and with the impromptu's?
1: capacity to wait like you said unhurried. but i think i've learned a lot from schubert from that like that because i'm very impatient as a person i always if i want something i don't understand why you know <laughs> why it's not, well, i mean <laughs> i don't want bad things so what's the problem i don't harm anyone so why not but um no life is sometimes not only about that and it has its own beauty in this you know Everyday nuances, I think it's very important, and this is typical Schubert's simple beauty uh, seeing the happiness in tiny details of everyday life and being, you know, art of patience, I would say being capable of feeling this space and this time, which doesn't, you have an impression, doesn't move with nothing, but still feeling the nuances of it and just being there in that moment. It's not in his music. It's not always joyful, of course. There is lots of pain, in my opinion, in his music in this process. But that's a very feminine process, I think, a waiting process, like giving a birth, being pregnant, for example. Is a very and also it, of course, it have it exists in men as well. But um, it's a very feminine side in both men and women, I think. And that's that's that uh, that's something that I've also had to learn in life, you know. So definitely in music as well like in the second movement of the sonata for me, it's like acceptance of death at some point because it's painful, it's awkward, it's um, something unacceptable, unacceptable, but you accept it. You see the death in front of you. It's like accepting that it exists. And this moment is uh, not very uh, easygoing. So there is, of course, this flow of movement, but at the same time, there is lots of statics into it. Because you just watch death into the eyes and you accept it. That's a very painful moment, I think, for everybody, and um, especially if you are playing this movement in the concert hall, it's kind of there is some awkwardness in it, I think, with the public as well, because it's a little bit awkward to share this with public. You know, we it's, get back to
0: that intimacy.
1: Exactly. Yeah. But this one is really there is some romantic intimacy that you can share much more easily. But this one is really because it's so related with the loneliness and the being completely alone in front of it, that to share this with public, it's kind of awkward for me and it's awkward for them. It's like they have to be very strong to be capable of accepting it in that moment. It's like, it's almost like a performance in a museum somehow when I play this moment, because I feel it's it could be a huge challenge also for public to listen so long, such a tragic uh, music, I think. Mm-hmm.
0: Let's go back a little earlier still to the Rachmaninoff second and third piano concertos. These are some of the most celebrated concerti in the repertoire. How was that experience for you of recording, of, of rec- of recording these, these uh, monolithic uh, <laughs> masterworks? Oh! <laughs> My daughter here. Oh let's,
1: cute, you can answer. Yeah. Let's, no, Let's say hi. Why not? <laughs>
0: Yeah, I love the orchestra
1: because they have this warm, nostalgic old sound. You know,
0: Mm -hmm. I love
1: this um, twentieth-century sound also on piano. I love my favorite pianists are like Rachmaninoff and you know Gould and Richter. And the orchestra has this, for me, very nostalgic sound. And I think Rachmaninoff being Uh, himself a Russian composer that went to America. And there is this kind of feeling of different cultures in him and at the same time very individual and this kind of nostalgia from his own life, but also nostalgia that we might have uh, regarding certain epoch artistic-wise. And they have that. So I wanted them to play this concerto. And with Pavel, we played many concerts together, so it's always very comfortable. It's not a nice word, but to feel like... in complicity with someone that you know and who knows you very well makes, of course, the process of working much more interesting because it allows you to go farther and discover some new things together.
0: You must have a great relationship with him because as, as I look, not mm. only touring and with your recordings, he's very often in your corner. Do you want to talk a little bit about that relationship in a concerto between orchestra and pianist and conductor? I've always seen it as these essential points on the triangle Mm. to make a concerto work. And you spoke earlier about how you're not always in complete control of the tempo because there has to be a bit of give and take. You're in control.
1: It's just uh, in your freedom. Mm. But yeah, in Rachmaninoff specifically, if I talk about concerto, uh, specifically about Rachmaninoff concertos, for me, of course, it's a one of the major pieces for piano, so piano is very present, and we know that we can shine with these pieces if you play well, etc. But most importantly for me is the polyphony of Rachmanino. So for me, it's very important. It was very important that every voice in the orchestra had as much importance as mine. Afterwards, you have to balance the voices as you do in the polyphony, but this was very important for me during this recording. I didn't want to be a pianist that is you know, very present and orchestra accompanies that, because I think the strength and uh, genius of Rachmaninoff is exactly this complicated polyphony which is transformed into a music that is simple and understandable for any human being, even those who don't know classical music so well. And at the same time, to have this very complex polyphony and to achieve this emotional result is a unique genius that only Rachmaninoff has, in my opinion, I mean, for piano music. During this process of recording, orchestra was very important. I really counted on orchestra as well, not just piano. So, of course, when we did the editing process, I was there also. I'm always there for the editing process. I do editing myself because for me, it's not important to make correction of wrong notes, but it's important to make a dramaturgy. Also for the orchestral part, I was uh, during the editing process there and editing it. So for me, every voice, every instrument had a huge importance. And I learned a lot myself during this recording process. Because first of all, you work with the orchestra more intensively than you would do during the concert. Because nowadays we don't have much rehearsals. And also during the editing process, I learned how I could become the orchestra myself. Because I was there and it was important for me, every voice, every instrument. And that was really interesting.
0: Are there composers you find yourself returning to again and again, drawn to almost intuitively? Uh, I think Liszt. Mm-hmm. Yes. Why, why Liszt? And and how is your relationship? Here's the corollary to that. How is your relationship with Liszt changed over the decades?
1: It doesn't change.
0: Oh, tell me why.
1: That's why it's uh, you go back in. SM. I don't know because Liszt is the I think the the composer for me that. Just fits my fingers and body so naturally. I don't know how can I explain that. It's like he has very difficult virtuoso pieces, but so does Rachmaninov and so does Stravinsky and some other composers. But with Liszt, uh, it's just for my fingers. You know, it's my for for my body language, for my uh, body and my anatomy. It's very natural, and also emotionally. I think it's like mine. You know, it's like me. I don't know how can I explain. It's very ambitious. I have this feeling. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe people hate when I play list. That's not the point. What I'm saying is that I have this feeling of going back home to my uh, most first uh, impression of what concert is, what real interpretation is. First time when I played list on stage, I understood what creating an interpretation was because he gives this natural, um, some kind of, you know, energy to do things in a natural way. His music drives you in a natural way of interpretation of body language of uh, virtuosic moments that are authentic and not just practiced and then reached the point. You know what I mean?
0: Mm-hmm. no No, I do, I do, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> My phrases are very long and endless. Okay, no, I appreciate
0: that <laughs> paragraph form is desired here. Less it's, questions it's, it's quite longer a pleasure. answers. No, it's quite a pleasure. <laughs>
1: What is a very special also by Liszt is that, for example, if you take love themes with different composers—Liszt, Brahms—you know Rachmanino, everybody has different approach with uh, this kind of emotional part of a human being. For example, in Liszt, we often think that it's very um, flirty. But superficial, right? We consider this sometimes as a superficial.
0: Most of people, but that's not fair. That's not fair because you have the are completely... of course, of course. Completely de
1: Gondol, and of course. Uh, what I'm saying is that uh, often it's interpreted. I mean, it's interpreted. His music it has understood. the reputation
0: of being showy and
1: exactly. But, but of course, there is this flirtatious moment in his love scenes uh, in his music. But um, the reason I think that that's there is that. I think Liz was a composer that had very clear vision of um, uh, of that moment that we have right now will not exist tomorrow. He has this um perception in my opinion in his music that's what I feel it's everything is in the moment, very light because like you know that after that there is nothing. I have this impression even if he was very religious person. I have this impression in his music. it's in the moment, and then there is nothing. So this moment is somehow very legereza, very light, enlightened. Enlightened It's not the same word, but like lightened, because he has a very profound understanding of after that moment, this moment will not exist anymore. It's ephemer. So this philosophy of uh, accepting ephemer gives this light...
0: Fleeting.
1: Exactly, and light... Uh, perception of life in that moment, because it will not exist tomorrow anymore. So, this uh, Legereza moments comes from his profound uh, personality, I think. So, that's why um, somebody can see just the surface, what's on that, but you can see, of course, deeper and see much more profound reading of his music.
0: When you were learning to play the piano, is there an epiphany or a significant lesson from a teacher that stuck with you that, that you could share?
1: The moment that I remember, if you are really interested in a specific moment, was the moment that was really unpleasant with Oleg Meisenberg that I admire a lot, and I love him, and he was one of the major... I only had like three people in my life that changed me musically. I think my mother, who presented music to me, and uh, uh, Gizi Mirjibbe, that he was my teacher at the conservatory in Georgia, and then Oleg Meisenberg in Vienna, with whom I became... I think an artist, an independent artist, it's after him, I think, I consider that I really realized what my own interpretation was. And thanks to him as well, of course, he really played a role. Well, there was one moment because he always was very respectful with me. You could feel that I was not his favorite student. It's really too much to say, but I was always ending his class concerts. For example, I was at the end, like I was always in the finale. And, you know, he was showing openly what he thought about me to other students as well, because... He was not trying to be politically correct. He was just saying what he was thinking, etc. But once he was really rude with me and he said like, well, he was really rude, like it's really bad playing or something like that. Mm-hmm. And there were other students as well in the, in the room. And it was the only time, I think, first time and the last time. But it was first time for me. So I was so angry. I'm a very proud person. So I wanted to leave the room, but I didn't. But I was sure I will leave, but I didn't. And that, that was a huge lesson for me, you know, because nobody ever has done something like that since I'm grown up. I guess my parents, they never did. Maybe some people who made mistakes and who were not nice, but not people that mattered to me, you know. And so it was a huge lesson to take something that I thought was not objective, first of all, I thought, because I think he was in a, not in a good mood or he was angry about, I don't know, or maybe it was objective, but I thought it was not objective. And I thought it was rude and I was really angry and my, I was very proud and I this pride was killing me. But I somehow stopped it in myself and watched it in front of me and accepted that. That was a huge lesson. It's not musical, but in life, it was a huge lesson. It's somehow also accepting your own interpretation that it might be not so well understood and that might you will receive reactions that you don't consider as something as pleasant, but at the same time that you you watch it in front of you and you still can have your opinion but not just run but to stay and just take it, it to own it
0: to own that interpretation or to consider like okay maybe Maybe I'm right here. Maybe he's right there. Did it also help you handle brutal... Cri- yeah, it yeah, help yeah. You absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he was right my forward. teacher.
1: He was allowed mm. to do that. I mean, mm-hmm. it was nothing uh, that was not appropriate. Like, it, it was just uh, unusual f- from him. And I was very, you know, I was very sensitive. And uh, But he didn't do anything that was unacceptable, of course. It was just brutal in a way that emotionally I took it very, you know, almost personally. But then I understood it's, it shouldn't be personal, you know. Uh, there could be something like that. And you should... Deal with it, and actually, I don't. I don't think about reactions anymore. I take it easily, but I, it doesn't really. It doesn't really change my perception of things. It doesn't really affect me, fortunately, because sometimes I get horrible critics. So, it doesn't affect me. That's great. But uh, this is just one moment, specific moment that was uh, when I felt how I grew up in a one second, you know, and become a little bit more adult than before. But uh, in general, he taught me wonderful things. Like he had incredibly huge fantasy and imagination in music he could write a book or a novel about a piece of music like with words he would talk like with lots of imagination that was something incredibly interesting because i love literature and i love music and to see this in him without trying to be a writer or something he was just talking as he would be a writer and describe sometimes music in a very personal way which showed his unlimited fantasy and imagination that was huge inspiration i think and it was—it felt so right. It was so subjective, but it felt so right because he was so authentic in what he was saying. And also he was the one that uh, somehow showed me that interpretation you cannot learn from professors or teachers. It has to be your own or then there is no interpretation if it's not your own. Your own journey. Yeah, I think so, yeah.
0: Been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard Katya Bunyatishvili perform clips from Liszt's transcription of Schubert's Stenchen from Schwanke Song No. 4, Schubert's Impromptu No. 3 in G-flat major, and the first movement of Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto Number 2 in C minor, with Pavel Yervy conducting the Czech Philharmonic Orchestra. All albums on Sony Classical. Our intro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at listenmusicculture.com. Our outro music is Katya Bunyatishvili, performing Liszt's Consolation Number no. 3 from her latest album, Labyrinth, on Sony Classical. Question for the podcast? Message me on Facebook at Soundboard, or hit me on the gram at Soundboard Podcast. Subscribe to Soundboard on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, or wherever you pod your casts.